right, so if you have your Bibles with you, turn once again to the book of First Thessalonians. Today we're going to start chapter 4. <clears throat> Last week we looked at just the first half of chapter 3, where Paul continues to encourage these new Christians and affirm them and just how good that he has heard that they are doing, even in the face of all the opposition that was against them. I'm not going to go through the second half of chapter 3 because what Paul says there is essentially just more of the same. He continues to point out all the good things that they were doing. Paul seems to be one of those kinds of people who um, tended to use a lot more words than he needed to in order to say something. Any of you know somebody like that? I mean, I'm sure you do. I mean, you get the point they make clearly in the first couple sentences, but then they spend the next five minutes continuing to say the same thing over and over, but in a a different way. Well, Paul seems to kind of be like that. I mean, go to... Uh, some of his sentences just go on and on and on. Just go to the first chapter of Ephesians. It's just one run-on sentence after another. I mean, it's one of the most powerful texts in the whole Bible. But you're like, man, find a period somewhere. It just keeps going on. Now, that doesn't mean that I think that any of Paul's words are unnecessary at all. I mean, you can't really say that because, after all, they are included in the Word of God. So even though some of his words seemed to be redundant, they were still inspired by the Holy Spirit. But for the sake of this series, I'm not going to break down something that he's pretty much already said. The second half of chapter 3 is just him gushing over them again on how well they were doing. And I believe that there is a reason for that. And it's not just because Paul tended to be a little wordy. The reason is because of the way that he transitions this letter beginning in chapter 4. And so that's what we're going to look at. We're going to start there, and then I'll explain what I mean after we read the first eight verses. So let's all stand together and read 1 Thessalonians 4, beginning in verse 1. It says, Finally then, brethren, we request and and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Let's pray. Lord, I am so grateful for your word. Lord, specifically the words that you have given us this morning. God, I pray that you would take the truth of this and and change us from the inside out. Lord, I want the message that you have given me to speak, God, to, to have a life-changing effect. And, Lord, that won't happen because of the clever way that I've put words together. It would only happen because your spirit was all over it. So, Lord, I'm asking for that to happen. Let your will be done. In your name I pray. Amen. 
If you pay attention to the letters that Paul wrote in the New Testament, you will notice a pattern that nearly every one of them follow. And that is that Paul tends to spend the first half of his letters reminding his readers of what Jesus has done, what it means for them now, and who they are because of their faith in that. He basically spends the first half of his letters preaching the gospel to those who have already heard it, just reminding them again of these truths. The second half of his letters is all about the therefore. Remember, I've told you that whenever you come to a therefore in the Bible, know that it is about to tie together whatever was said before the therefore to whatever is about to be said after it. The second half of Paul's letters is all about the now what. This is what Jesus has done. This is who you are in him. Now what? What do we do with that? And so he spends the rest of the letter telling us, saying, this is how everything I just said affects your life. This is how you now live in light of what Jesus has done and who he has made you. That's exactly what's going on here in First Thessalonians. He's encouraging them over and over and telling them all about the great things that he has heard. He says, you're standing strong, you're, you're serving others, you're loving each other, your lives are a reflection of the example that we set that when we were with you. Paul gets pretty redundant in these things because of where he's going next in the letter. He's about to tell them how they should live. And he knows that if they don't first realize and believe who they are, then it would be a waste of time for him to tell them now how to live. If you've been attending this church for any amount of time, you've probably heard me say pretty often that everything you do is a reflection of what you believe. If what you do doesn't line up with what you say you believe, then the truth is you really just don't believe it. That's what James is talking about when he said, faith without works is dead. He's saying that if you truly believe it, It's going to show in your actions. For example, you can say all day long that you trust God. But if you continue to struggle with with fear, then you don't really believe that God can be trusted. Because if you did, you wouldn't be so fearful and anxious and worrying all the time. My son Braden just turned 13 this past Tuesday. Became a teenager. And one of the things that we do in my family with my siblings and our kids is that whenever one of the boys turns 13, then the men in the family, me, my two brothers, my brother-in-law, and my dad, who are all fully devoted followers of Christ, we will write a letter to this new teenager. Just some words of encouragement as they begin this next important phase of life. They don't have parties with all their friends like they did before. This one is just spent with the family. And I got to read the letters that that Braden got, and none of us got together and planned out what we were going to say, but um, there was something interesting that all of those letters showed. There was some advice given, but for the most part, they were all about reminding him of who he is. Not only that he's a Harris and what it means to be a part of this family, but more important, 
that he belongs to Christ and what that means. There were mostly letters just affirming his identity because we all know that what he does is always going to be a reflection of what he believes about himself. Young boys, young men, are, they get their identity from primarily their fathers, but also the other men in their life. And so we wanted to make sure that, that he knows this, that he has the right idea about himself. I pointed out several weeks ago how God the Father did this with Jesus. The first day he began his ministry and got baptized by his cousin John, he came up and a voice from heaven was heard saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In order for his son to be successful in what he was about to embark on, the father did not fill his head with a bunch of instruction and advice. He filled his heart with affirmation, reminding him of who he was. Jesus was able to live the way he did and do all the things that he did simply because he knew who he was. He knew what it meant to be a son of the father. And everything that he did was just a reflection of that. If you're following along in the sermon guide there in the bulletin, here's the first point for you to fill in. It's not going to be up on the screen this time because we're having technical difficulties with that, but I'll just say it. The first point is this. Your actions will always line up with your identity. Your actions will always line up with your identity. What you believe about yourself What you believe about yourself. And I had to add that last part there because our actions don't always line up with our true identity. But they do line up with the identity that we believe. What I mean by that is if you are in Christ, you are a righteous, spirit-filled, unconditionally loved child of God. But until you actually believe that, your actions aren't going to show that. They're not going to line up with who you are. Your your actions are going to reflect what you actually believe. And a lot of us believe something other than what the Bible says who we are in Christ. Some of us are, are, are showing what we believe, and it's anything but that. And that identity usually comes from the words that we allow others to put on us, our own insecurities, or trying to tie your identity to anything other than Christ, whether it be your job, your family, or even what a lot of people do, they're basing who they are on the mistakes that they made in the past and think that's that that is what defines them but it's not and so Paul spends the first three chapters of this letter affirming who the Thessalonians are in Christ and then based on that he now begins to tell them what they should do before we look at that closer let me just point out that this is one of the biggest differences between religion and legalism And the gospel. And that's the next thing in your notes. Religion says what you do defines who you are. What you do defines who you are. And that's why there's so much condemnation associated with with churches or, or anybody that preaches a legalistic religious message. Because they're always focusing on outward behavior, trying to tell you how you better manage everything that you do on the outside, manage your behavior. And there's a lot of condemnation and guilt associated with it because if that's true, then that's pretty depressing. Is it not? I mean, if my identity is defined by everything that I did, then I'm a pretty sorry person. I can tell you that right now. 
praise God that that's not true, that Jesus came and he changed all that, turned it up on its head. The gospel is just the opposite. It says what, who you are defines what you do. Who you are defines what you do. And if you really believe in who you are, then your actions will reflect that. That's why it's so important for us to keep being reminded of who we are so that we will eventually begin to believe it. So now that Paul has laid the foundation by reminding them who they are, look, let's look at what he says, what they are to do with that. Verse 1 and 2 again. Finally, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, just affirming them again, that you excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. There's an old saying that I'm sure all of us are familiar with. It simply says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? Of course, it means that if something is doing good, don't risk messing it up by trying to improve it or alter it in any way. And that's a good rule to go by in some things, but it's, a not, it's not a good rule to follow in other things. Trying to apply that to things that you shouldn't can lead to complacency and just trying to maintain the status quo, and that's not what we want. And that's not a good rule to follow when it comes to our spiritual life. Because you see, being in a relationship with God is all about movement, and growth. It's not about staying in one place. Romans 1.17 says that the righteousness of God is revealed in the gospel from faith to faith, meaning that the more that we learn about what he has done, the more we grow in our relationship with him. He takes us from one level of trust in him to another. All throughout the Bible, you'll find that God's working in our lives is always for the purpose of growth and maturity. He's not content to let us just stay at one level. Paul talks about this, liking it to putting away childish things when he became a man. He scolds the Corinthians for still needing milk when they should be eating solid food, talking about the spiritual things that they are being taught. This movement into spiritual growth and maturity is what we call the process of sanctification. It's just a long, fancy word that simply means spiritual growth, being molded more and more to look like Jesus. And every level of growth will always be reflected in some type of change in behavior. Uh, Our growth will be reflected in our actions. Now, you got to understand that spiritual maturity is not defined by age. It's just not. Just because someone has been a Christian for a very long time does not necessarily mean that they are automatically spiritually mature. Spiritual maturity is shown by how you live, which then reflects what you believe. The third point in your notes is this. We should never be satisfied with our spiritual growth. Now, there's a big difference between being satisfied and being content. Paul said in Philippians 4.11 that I have learned to be content in whatever situation I am in. Being content just means I accept where I am because I know this is where a sovereign God who guides every one of my steps has me. But I'm not satisfied in that because I know he doesn't want me to stay here. 
He wants me to grow and mature, and I want everything that God wants for my life. That's the attitude we should all have when it comes to spiritual growth. And then the next point, wherever you are, whatever level that you are in right now in your spiritual growth, remember this. It's okay to be where you are, but it's not okay to stay there. It's okay to be where you are, but it's not okay to stay there. It doesn't matter how long you have been following the Lord. If there is still air in your lungs, there is room for you to grow and mature. As long as we are on this side of heaven, we've got to pursue that. And I say pursue it intentionally because spiritual growth doesn't just happen on its own. I mean, you can't just do nothing and expect to grow spiritually. Nor is it something that we are naturally drawn to. What we are naturally drawn to, our flesh is drawn to immaturity, not maturity. And so we've got to be intentional in our growth and maturity. That's why I said that age doesn't equal maturity. I mean, you can be a Christian for 50 years, but if you've done absolutely nothing to pursue spiritual growth, you're going to remain spiritually immature. And we pursue spiritual growth by things like prayer and, and study and being a part of a community of believers and worship and stepping out of your comfort zone, being used by God, serving others. We got to be intentionally and purposeful in these things if we are going to grow in maturity in the knowledge of the Lord. Paul spends much of the letter gushing over how they are doing, but he doesn't want them to be satisfied with that. He doesn't want them to stay there, and so he says, excel still more. Now, this isn't excel more so that God will like you more. This is excel more because of who you are in him. Excel more because you have God's favor, not so that you will be more favored. You can't be more favored than you already are in Christ, but you can grow more because of that favor that you have in him. Now look at verse 3. First part of it, he says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. So many people that I've talked to just get so anxious and worried and, and all stirred up just wanting to know what God's will for my life is. Just want to know what God's will is. Well, there you go. There it is. Plain as day. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. God's will for your life is for you to grow in spiritual maturity. Grow in the knowledge of him. You might think, well, that's too vague. I mean, I want to know his will for what job I should take, what career I should pursue, who I'm supposed to marry or be with, or or those kind of things. Well, it's not vague at all if you use that truth in verse 3 to then filter the decisions that you have to make. God's will for your life is not going to be spelled out in great detail all the time, but he does give us enough that if we are faithful with what he does give us, then the details will just take care of themselves. What I mean by that is if you are faced with a decision on what career to choose or, or, or person to marry or be with or, or anything like that, make that decision based on thinking, okay, which direction that I go here is going to, to lend itself to helping me in my spiritual growth? 
Is there a decision I can make that might help me draw closer to God, or is there one that will tend to pull me away from Him? Those decisions become easier when we filter them through the things that God does give us in His Word. And then things get pretty interesting with the second half of verse 3. Here he's getting a little more specific. He says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he says, that is, in other words, here's what sanctification is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Not only is he getting more detailed, he's getting more personal. He has now gone from exhorting to downright meddling. Now, obviously, sanctification involves a lot more than just one thing. But for some reason, Paul has chosen this one thing in this text to define it. And for him to do that tells us this must be a pretty big deal. Now, if what he just said is true, that growing in spiritual maturity is to abstain from sexual immorality, then the flip of that is also true. Taking part in sexual immorality will stop your spiritual growth. It will bring it to a complete halt. I mean, there's just no other way to interpret that. It's pretty cut and dry. Well, what exactly is considered to be immoral? Anything outside of God's design for human sexuality. Anything outside of his perfect design would include things like sleeping with or being physically intimate with someone you are not married to. I don't care how much you love them. Homosexuality, pornography. You cannot be involved with any of those things and expect to grow spiritually. You can't. That means you are outside the will of God because it just said that his will is your sanctification. And every time we step outside the will of God, we are inviting destructive consequences into our lives. Not because God's going to strike you down for it, but because he has provided a safe covering from some of the brokenness of this world. And when we choose to step outside of his design, we are stepping outside of that covering and choosing to expose ourselves to all kinds of danger, physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We are choosing to halt our spiritual growth just for the sake of temporary gratification. Now, why? Out of all the things that Paul could have said to abstain from, did he choose this? Because like I said, it is a big deal to God. Because this is something that he has given humanity. as a beautiful gift that reflects and is a picture of the intimacy that Jesus desires with his bride, the church. And so when we take it and use it and redefine it for our own selfish purpose and pleasure, we are distorting the very image of Christ. Some would argue that Paul wrote this just because of the particular culture at that time, and it doesn't really apply to today. Because the attitude of the culture today has changed so much. We've evolved. We've progressed 
Well, yeah, he did write it for that culture then. I can tell you right now, it's no less relevant today than it was back then. And I would say that because of the way the attitude of our culture has changed, it's even more relevant today. Listen, just because the attitude of the culture has changed about some things does not mean God's attitude has changed about it. And I promise you it hasn't. What I mean by change is that what used to be taboo in our culture is now accepted as norm. What used to be controversial for doing is now considered controversial for not doing. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 is an absolutely foolish verse for our culture today. Number one, it's foolish because it's foolish to then to abstain from anything that you feel like doing. And number two, it's foolish to call something like that immoral. They'll say it's not immoral. It's freedom of expression. It's love. It's who you are. No, if it's outside of God's design, it's immoral. That's all there is to it. And this is an example of something we talked about last week, standing for truth in a world that is directly opposed to truth. If you're going to stand for this particular truth, you are destined to run into opposition for that. Talk about being all alone and ridiculed. Stand against sexual immorality, and you'll find yourself there. I promise you. If you're going to stand for this, you're going to pay a price for it. But like I also said last week, it's going to be a price that will be well worth paying. And remember this, that I said, to take the attitude and follow the way of the world at the end of the day is going to cost you a whole lot more. A whole lot more than it will to stand for truth. So why would this particular thing stop your spiritual growth? Because spiritual growth and maturity is all about living according to who you are in Christ. We could come up with a whole list of reasons why we should abstain from sexual immorality, but as a Christian, there's only one primary reason, because it goes completely against who you are. It goes against the price that Jesus paid to make you who you are in Him. It doesn't line up with your identity. And the more that you believe who Christ has made you, the more you will want to abstain from anything that doesn't line up with that. If you know what it means to be loved and accepted by God and you truly believe that and you understand what that means for you, you won't feel the need to give a sacred part of yourself to to, to feel loved and accepted by someone else. If you truly believe that you have been made holy by the blood of Jesus only, and you just don't want to do anything unholy. It distorts that. Every act of immorality boils down to something else I talked about last week. Believing the lie that something other than Jesus will satisfy. Something other than him will satisfy. I'm telling you right now, the more satisfying you discover him to be, the less satisfying you'll believe anything in this world is. Nothing can compete with that. Paul goes on to explain more what that looks like. 
in this context, verse 4 and 5, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God. The vessel he's referring to is our physical bodies. In a culture that is consumed with comfort and entitlement and self-indulgence, the lives of those who belong to Christ should declare a different message. And I'm not talking about just by the, what we say and sing on Sunday morning, but by the way that we use and we steward the physical bodies that God has entrusted us with. Our physical bodies are one of the greatest instruments that we have been given for worship. It is an instrument for worship. And what we do with our bodies says a lot about our worship. And again, I'm not talking about how expressive you are while we're singing, we're singing on Sunday mornings. I'm talking about what we do with it, how we choose to use it every day. And it really says a whole lot about who we worship. We're either worshiping our own selfish desires with our bodies or we're worshiping God. It reflects where our worship is focused. In Philippians 1.20, Paul said that his earnest expectation and hope is that Christ would be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. But he wanted his physical body to even magnify Christ. Your physical body was given to you to bring glory to God with it. What you do with it says a lot about how you honor him. Verse 6. And that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. The Greek word that Paul used there that's translated into brother was really an an all-encompassing word. It was referring to all Christians of either gender, whether it be a brother or a sister in the Lord. Basically, he's saying your brother or sister in Christ is not to be used or viewed as a means to satisfy your flesh. And apparently, God takes that pretty seriously because he says here, if you do that, he's going to take matters into his own hands. Which makes sense because any good father would do that if their child was being dishonored and disrespected. God looks out for his own. Verse 7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. I think this is kind of a throw to those who have a tendency to use grace as a license to sin. Who think, now that I have been set free from sin... The, the curse of it, and I have God's forgiveness now. Now that I've been set free from it, I'm free to sin. And Paul is saying, no, you are freed from sin so that you could grow in sanctification. And again, like last week, Christianity is not about all the things that we don't get to do anymore. It's about all the things that we do get to do. Now that you have been set free, you do get to grow and mature in the knowledge of Jesus. Your life gets to be molded to look more and more like him. That's what you get to do now. And then finally, verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. I've talked to people who have struggled 
in this area before. Knowing that what they are doing is going against God's word. And I asked them, why? If you know it goes against his word. And they said, because basically the culture, that's the way we are now. I mean, it's what everybody else does. Um, the argument that this is an old-fashioned, out-of-date attitude that doesn't apply to today because of the way our culture is now is absolutely blown out of the water by verse 8. If you reject this and continue to live in sexual immorality, you are not rejecting some old-fashioned attitude. You are rejecting God himself. And again, just because the attitude of the culture has changed doesn't mean God has. His attitude toward purity has never changed. His attitude toward human sexuality has never changed. It is still just as perfect as it was when he first designed it. To buy into the attitude of the culture is to blatantly reject God. You cannot follow the culture and follow Jesus at the same time. It won't work. People have tried it forever. And not one person has gone, hey, I figured out how to do this now. No, it doesn't work. And I love the fact that Paul, Paul throws that last line in there in verse 8. Who gives his Holy Spirit to you. He brings us all back around to your identity. Reminding you of who you are in him. Why should you abstain from sexual immorality and pursue purity? Why should you use your body to bring glory to God? Because you have the spirit of God living inside of you. That should be all the reason in the world right now. Because you have the spirit of God living inside of you. That is the sign, the mark that he has given you that you belong to him. We don't follow the culture of this world because we belong to a different culture. Even though we live in this one, we belong to another. And that reminder of the Holy Spirit is also a reminder that we can live different than the culture around us. People think, oh, it's just too hard, I can't do it. No, if you've got the Spirit of God living in you, you can. We have access to the only thing that enables us to live in the world, but not like the world, and that is the supernatural power of God's Holy Spirit. You have it, so use it. And that Spirit is there to constantly remind us of who we are and to help us in our pursuit of growth and maturity. And part of the way that he does that is by making us aware of things in our life that don't ac- accurately reflect who we are in him so that we can then bring that to Jesus and repent. And I'm sure that there are probably sev- several of you in here this morning that he may be doing that with through his word here. Some of you have been living a lifestyle that has halted your spiritual growth dead in its tracks because you've followed and bought into the attitude of the culture and rejected God's design and purpose. But I'm telling you right now, it's because of his kindness and his mercy and his grace that he is revealing that to you right now because he loves you too much to leave you there.
He loves you too much to stay in that stagnant place. He wants you to bring that to him. Turn from it. Continue in the growth that he desires for you. And no matter how far you've gone in that, he is the God of restoration. The Bible says that he restores unto you the years the locust has eaten. And he wants to restore you and lead you on the journey of knowing him more. But in order to do that, there's some things we got to leave behind. And he wants you to bring that to him this morning and turn from it and start living again according to who he has made you. According to the high price he paid to make you his child. Let's pray. God, I thank you that your desire is never to take anything good away from us, but always to give good to us. Lord, anything that you're wanting to take away is because it's not good. You know the world and the lies of the enemy says that it is. And God, I pray for those this morning who have just got caught up in the attitude of the world. And Lord, I know that there are some that have really paid a heavy price for that already. It's just the guilt and the shame has come upon them because of that Lord I pray that you would just take off of them this morning Lord let them know that you are loving them right where they are because you want to take them somewhere else Lord I pray that we would be a people that would pursue growth Pursue knowing you, because just like we sang earlier, it's only in knowing you that everything else changes. So Lord, I pray that just an attitude, a spirit of repentance would just come over this room right now, Lord. And people would just lay aside their own desires. Their own worldly attitudes, their flesh. Lord, they would run to you. Come back under that covering of your perfect design. God, we want what you want. Lord, make your desires our desires. So would you now come and have your way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.